Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, not too far outside of the nation's capital. Nearby, uh, in bucolic Cleveland Park, we have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. And at her mosquito-infested wasteland of a country retreat, we have Rosa Brooks clutching in her hand a fly swatter. Ready I have to... two, actually, David. I have one in each hand. <laughs> it's like an old-style Western. She's ready to draw. Right, exactly. Two-gun... <laughs> Two-gun, two-swatter. Two-gun Rosa, right. Actually, I'm a little worried given that she's also a cop and could be armed at this moment, and those mosquitoes could be getting more than they they counted for. But in any event, out there on the eastern shore of Maryland at the um, fabled Brooks compound is Rosa Brooks. Uh, And in beautiful London, England, uh, we have Corey Shockey, at home, it's evening there. She probably is having a glass of port, um, and uh, her servants are perhaps playing something lovely on a violin, standing in below the background. Stairs. Yeah, below right. stairs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Corey, have you learned how to speak English since you've arrived there? I have learned some really magnificent words that the language that people of this lovely little series of islands speak that is very different from the language that I speak. Do you want to share share any with our Deep State listeners? Oh, yeah. A couple of my favorites. Uh, Shirty, which means somebody's being... um, uh, That's a good one. Yeah, shirty means they're being kind of... um, They're having an irritated reaction to what you're doing. And Mm. then there's to skive off which means mm-hmm. to skip out on work. Um, those are two of my very favorites. I have not yet gone to a cricket game. People tell me that since I am a baseball fan, I will like cricket. And This I is not true, Corey. Mission. This okay, is not thank true. thank you, Rosa. I will now cite you. Cricket, cricket is, is the only boring. sport I'm aware of where the players, while they are playing, go off to play tennis in order to get some exercise during <laughs> the cricket game. <laughs> That is so true. Cricket is the most unlikable, unwatchable sport (laughs) that there is on the planet. I don't care what Ed Luce said. What did you say? Matches last for days. They do. They they do. It's 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 absolutely bizarre. And yet, how does this tie into the news, anyone? 
Surely it has something to do with Andrew Johnson, the first president to be impeached. I think that they're from Pakistan. Wrapped in an American flag with his head on a copy of the Constitution. Uh, No, I think Evelyn wins the gold star. Why don't you tell us, Evelyn? She always is teacher's pet. I'm sorry. It's just that I'm like a little dabbling dilettante remember in the last podcast you heard how i read the washington post cover to cover so it's like reading the economist cover to cover which i also do bravo to kind of keep abreast of little snippets all over the world and so and this imran khan i've been following him first because he's handsome and he used to be married to um neil uh, Neil, mick jagger's wife i think um one of his wives at one point if i have that right um if i don't then the deep state nerds will correct me um but also he just he he was like you know he's an interesting figure cricket star who ran against basically nawaz sharif and his party of course nawaz sharif himself is not in running but there there have been more or less two two political parties running pakistan off and on and more or less two families also kind of running pakistan off and on if i'm allowed to simplify on this podcast and all of a sudden this dude this cricketer handsome cricketer burst onto the scene i don't know about 10 or more years ago and he started really in part, actually demonstrating against the United States and our drone activity. I'm sure um, Rosa can tell us more about this. And um, and so he made people in the U.S. government a little bit nervous. And the coverage of him was sort of, well, he might be a little bit of a rabble rouser. But I actually am bullish on him because mainly because he's breaking up the kind of monopoly of power that these families and these parties had. And also because I think he'll, and I'm hopeful, I guess, that he'll end up being pragmatic enough in terms of his relationship with the United States that he won't, you know, kick us out and not let us fight um, terrorists, you know. Okay. Can I object? Yes. I'm done. Um, uh, Because it looks to me like he is even more a tool of the Pakistani army uh, than the previous several Pakistani presidents. And while it's true that two families vacillate uh, in holding office, the army holds power. And I don't see any daylight between him and the army. I think he's much more uh, supportive of the Taliban than the previous administration. I think it's going to be really hard for him to... Uh, I think it's going to be really hard for us to sustain the distribution network for forces in Afghanistan through Pakistan with him as president. I think this is actually, I think he is going to be much, much more trouble for us than what came before. It's quite possible. He certainly has an, a populist streak. Um, uh, and, uh, Rosa, I'm just wondering, do you have a, a view on this election and what it may mean? We don't seem to get much chance to talk about other parts of the world, and yet here is a large nuclear power uh, that has just changed leadership in a a way that's not altogether comfortable. It's actually, uh, David, it's, it's interesting. Um, this is one of those stories that if it weren't for the constant shenanigans of President Trump, we would probably be paying much, much more attention to it. Um, right. Uh, you know, that, yeah. that Pakistan, you know, just a few years ago, 
uh, pundits were waxing eloquent about the fact that Pakistan is, is is extremely unstable, that Pakistan, you know, unlike Iran, a wannabe nuclear power, unlike North Korea, a just barely nuclear power, Pakistan has a substantial number of nuclear weapons. Um, and they are not clearly in the firm control of a group of people who are not clearly uh, our friends in any consistent way. Um, uh, and it's in a region that, as as we all know, is is rife with uh, uh, violent extremist groups of of all sorts. Um, and yet, at, despite the fact that you know we we were all saying, "Oh my God, this is terrifying!" There are actual nuclear weapons sloshing around in this very dangerous corner of the world. Just a few years ago, today, we we we. We sort of barely noticed Imran Khan's victory in the Pakistani elections uh, because we are bored by Pakistan now. We are only interested in Donald Trump and we are slightly interested in Russia, North Korea, and we really aren't very interested in anything else. Um, so, so, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't have any. I'm not enough of an expert on, on Pakistan to feel that I can say anything with any confidence about what Imran Khan is, is likely to mean in the longer run. Uh, I also think that the... You know, the history of U.S.-Pakistani relations um, strongly suggests that we make those kinds of predictions at our peril in any case, uh, that we, we've, we have signally failed to have um, consistently warm relations uh, with any Pakistani leader, um, which is not particularly surprising given that most Pakistani leaders uh, also find us a pretty fickle ally. Um, our, our attitudes towards That's Pakistan have... That's a great have, point. You know, oscillated yes, back and forth. Yeah, that's maybe worth talking about a little bit. Can, can I push back though? When when is my turn on something? I think I think you've just shut Rosa up, and she's. I, I didn't mean I to. I'm sorry. I'm Did done. You? Although I, I'm I am sorry, Rosa. <laughs> I am. I just do want to tell you all that, um, as part of my effort to rapidly educate myself some more about Imran Khan, um, I was looking at pictures of of him in his cricket star days, and he was a hunk. Exactly. Exactly. That's why he caught my attention. But and 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 like you, he went to Oxford. That's so true. I, I thought you were going to say like 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 me because I'm like a hunkette, but also <laughs> also like that because you were known as a child as a fast bowler with a wicked googly. <laughs> Another great British word. Googly. Yes. Yes. Y- yes. So, Evelyn. Well, the only thing I wanted to push back on the, because I, while I understand the point that Corey was trying to make about we shouldn't, I shouldn't be so optimistic about Imran Khan being able to work with us, I do have to go back to her point about him being close to the military in order to bolster my hope, my hope and my comments about having hope. Because at the end of the day, we know the military plays both sides, but it's really more that Pakistani intelligence service that plays the dirty game and uh, and the military does try to cooperate to some extent with us so I it's not a I, I, I absolutely take on board everything you guys said but I guess I'm a little bit hopeful and the fact that he's close to the military doesn't necessarily dissuade me of my hope because they like our money and they like to cooperate with us so I guess I'm willing to... They like our money a little bit more than they like to cooperate with us, though, it turns out. <laughs> they like our money and not cooperating with us. <laughs> well, I guess I'm willing to 
I don't blame them a bit either. To to quote our president, I'm willing to see what happens. Well, it does, you know, it does raise an issue right here is we, you know, we worry a lot about Iran. The president of the United States is deeply worried about Iran, which does not have nuclear weapons. Um, But of course, on the nukes, sorry, because I worked those issues very heavily in my past. And I do worry, I do think we should continue to worry about those and put the pressure on Pakistan on their nuclear um, security and also on uh, Pakistan and India with regard to their doctrine and all of that. So those are very valid points. Um, Well, you know, picking up on that point, Corey, one of the things that I've seen in the past few days in the wake of President Trump's triumphant visit to Europe uh, have been a number of stories that indicate that rekindling in the German public discourse is the idea that perhaps Germany ought to have a nuclear weapon. And I'm not saying this is a big movement, um, but it's something that was never discussed publicly or seldom discussed publicly. And now here it is being discussed again. And, you know, we have, you know, I just, you know, I sort of look at the world and we have this kind of rickety old NPT and, 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 and it looks like, you know, North Korea is not going to denuclearize. They're going to end up with being a nuclear power for some time. Pakistan's building this up. Pa- you know, the Iranians, you know, we're now pulling out of this deal. The Saudis have threatened to do what they need to do to, um, uh, to keep up with the Iranians. You've now had even the Germans talking about this. I wonder if, you know, there's a bit of a sea change going on or this is maybe this is just the way things have always been. No, it's not the way things have always been. The most effective nonproliferation tool has been reliable security guarantees by the United States towards its allies. That has been the major uh, curb on proliferation from countries who had the ability to cross the nuclear threshold. Japan, Germany, South Korea, um, quite a number of European countries. And uh, I think in the German case, the debate that is starting up right now that has been so superbly recounted on Twitter by Ulrika Franke and by Ulrich Speck um, is that Germany is, the German uh, security establishment is tottering at the prospect of an unreliable United States. They actually really like the current system where their uh, European neighbors feel safer without Germany making unilateral decisions about how to defend itself. Even now the debate about Germany, so so I should say, I had the great good fortune to be a student of Catherine Kelleher, who wrote the single best book ever written about Germany and the politics of nuclear weapons, titled Germany and the Politics of Nuclear Weapons. (laughs) 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 And she explored in a really detailed way the decisions that the Adenauer government made when Franz Josef Strauss was defense minister. Strauss very much wanted Germany to have an independent nuclear deterrent. Adenauer, the chancellor, understood that having the ability to do it and letting the United States negotiate you out of it in return for a security guarantee and an extended nuclear umbrella 
was actually a much more advantageous position for Germany to be in. And I think you still see very strong echoes of that. I do not think that the, that the German defense debate is arcing towards Germany with nuclear weapons. But what, they, what I do think serious people like Wolfgang Ischinger are talking about is the likelihood of a European nuclear deterrent based on the existing British and especially French nuclear arsenals that Germany would help pay for, that Germany might have, have some involvement in as they have an involvement in the American nuclear weapons stationed in Germany now. And, and so I think the core of this is the unreliability of the American guarantee given President Trump's behavior towards our closest friends and towards our adversaries. Rosa, that seems like a big deal to me. You know, it's, you keep hearing Trump saying, well, we're spending all this money. We have all these alliances. It doesn't benefit us. And he doesn't seem to have done the cost-benefit analysis to us of having us spend the money rather than somebody else. And us, you know, serving as this kind of stabilizing force and that our pulling back could lead to a reshuffling of the deck and something of an arms race. Yeah, um, you know, and, and we've discussed this before. I, it, it doesn't, I don't think it inevitably ends badly for the world. Um, you know, it is, it is not inconceivable that the uh, rapid retreat of the United States from its, its recent role as global guarantor. Um, it is not inconceivable that that retreat uh, might not inspire other states to step up in a positive way. Um, but we, what we are seeing so far is, is mostly just disarray that will be ultimately bad for us if it continues. I, I mean, that, you know, I think that the, the, the challenge uh, to, it's, it's I, like many of our listeners, probably have always been somewhat uncomfortable with the U.S. and the role of global cop. I think we, we, leaving aside the issue of whether we're, as Trump likes to say, you know, paying more than our fair share, I think there's a question about uh, whether we end up often doing more harm than good. But the question, of course, that we always have to ask ourselves is, you know, what's the alternative? Um, and most of the time, including now, uh, the alternative doesn't seem like it's shaping up to be a better one. Uh, no, no, it 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 doesn't. Uh, Evelyn, are we also seeing, um, you know, military moves by a group like the the Russians to sort of step up here a little bit more, take advantage of it, spend a little bit more, change their posture? You mean on the nuclear front? No, I just mean in terms of the competitiveness with the U.S. and filling the void left by the U.S. Uh, well. I mean, yes, uh, in terms of they would like to sell more arms and get us out of the way, but sanctions also impede that. Um, in terms of competing, um, I mean, the, the Russians like to demonstrate, for example, in Syria, that's the biggest demonstration of their loyalty to their, you know, well, they don't call them allies, but, you know, their partners, their friends, if you will. And so when every time, you know, every time the president says something calling into question our adherence to our political or treaty commitments or just in general to our allies, uh, the Russians definitely take advantage. They 
they amplify what the president says, and then they try to show by example and by what they say that they're not, you know, just fair weather friends or they're not just foul weather friends. You know, they they try to show that they're consistently uh, reliable suppliers of arms and weapons and fuel and energy and what have you. Of course, the Russians are incredibly transactional and they don't really believe in real alliances. So they have these kind of, I, I call them sham institutions. I mean, they have these organizations, but there there are no real affinities and no real commitments except uh, to do more, kind of to do more or less what Russia requires um, or what the minimum is that Russia requires. So I'm thinking of like the... Um, CSTO, and now I'm going to forget what the acronym stands for, but it's basically their their Eurasian organization that has, you know, Central Asians and Caucasus countries, and basically Russia rules the roost, and Russia tells them what they have to do, and that they have to accept Russian troops on their soil and on their bases, and they have to accept Russian equipment, etc. So um, it's a very different world from the Russian perspective when you're talking about alliances, but I would say you know, that the Europeans, as Corey said in the beginning, they're turning to one another and they have to figure, they're not happy about China. They do realize that they need to do something about China because China is stealing their technology. China is building all kinds of, um, they call them, you know, debt, debt bombs, I believe is the term. But anyway, they, they're, they're, they're indebting countries in order to gain influence over them. And some of those, um, where they're trying to do this are poor European countries. I think to some extent they, I don't know if they've succeeded in Cyprus, but I know they were trying. Um, so, you know, the Europeans are becoming alarmed that they can't count on the U.S. for, you know, protection necessarily against the Russians or the Chinese who are right there behind the Russians. So it'll be interesting to see how far they can, res how far they can go to resist without us in the background. Hopefully, my hope is that we'll um, be back there again with our allies, but I may be too Pollyannish. Well, let me sort of, you know, turn the dial on this just a, a little bit, Corey. But, you know, we talk about the traditional ways that countries compete and the traditional ways they deal with this. One of the things that struck me as I've been watching, you know, uh, the the unfolding story of, of, the, of the Russian efforts to interfere with U.S. elections, but also thinking of them in the context of their efforts in uh the UK, their efforts in Italy, their efforts in Hungary, their efforts in Poland, their efforts across Europe, um, and and also the case of uh, this uh, Russian spy who was here, who was, you know, a Russian woman dealing with Russian masters and going back and forth to Russia, but being part of the sort of NRA world and part of the establishment, being very kind of overt or or the Russians dealing in the Trump campaign and giving them money and showing up at the inauguration and all of this. And, and you know, it struck me that all of this is a little bit akin to hybrid warfare. You know, it's akin to the idea of sending troops into Ukraine. They're wearing uniforms. They just take off the Russian flag. They do everything else that an army does. They're in plain sight. Um, and yet there is this kind of deniability. And I think, you know, they are doing, they're conducting this massive intelligence operation uh, in plain sight, spying in plain sight. Is it part of hybrid warfare? Yes, it most definitely is. I mean, I think, uh, I think about it, like the, the term that works best for me is threshold warfare. 
the Russians are probing what our threshold is. So they take, they do things, see if we're able to respond. So they intrude into the, um, into the electoral network of 32 different states. They see whether we notice it. They see whether we do anything about it. They see whether we, we defend ourselves and call them out in public on their behavior. And if we don't, they push further and more. And I think we as a society have been extraordinarily slow to, uh, to acknowledge the damage that Russia is doing to us and the danger that it poses for us as a free society. But I do, I am hopeful that the president actually did us a favor at the Helsinki summit, which is he showed us where he is on this. And, and we need to organize to protect ourselves against the Russians and against the vulnerability the president presents for our country because of the Russians. Well, you know- I, I don't, I don't, I can't just jump in on that, David. I, I don't disagree with any of that, but, but. I do think that it's it's also important for us to not fall into the trap, which I know Corey doesn't fall into, but I certainly think we see lots of people in the media falling into of of then you know swinging the opposite direction of where Donald Trump is to the Russia is the arch enemy. The Russians are so fiendishly clever. They're they're at war with us in every possible way. They're the biggest threat to our national security. Russia, Russia, Russia. And I think that that is dangerous. That is is as dangerous as the opposite delusion, which is Trump's delusion, which is that the Russians are our, our dear pals and we they're not doing anything bad. Um, you know, for for, for sort of similar reasons that it, it blinds us to what's actually going on. You know, the Russians are doing all kinds of nefarious things to us, which we should be paying attention to and we should be trying to combat and we should not be just rolling over and saying, you know, thank you, Vladimir. Um, on the other hand, Russia is far from the only adversarial state or non-state actor that is playing around in, in that kind of threshold warfare. Uh, uh, the North Koreans, the Chinese... You know, you name it, um, and I do worry a little bit about the the sort of it's all Russia tends to make us forget um, that there are dangers of unintentional escalation with other actors as well. It tends to make us forget that our systems and networks are vulnerable to other actors as well. Well, but but you know, I I wanted to follow up with this uh, from a slightly different perspective that ties in in some ways to the book you wrote. Most recently, not the one that you're not writing now by procrastinating. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. And, and doing this podcast. Um, and that is that, you know, th- throughout the sort of past 70 years of history of U.S. foreign policy and national security policy, there has been this term, all means short of war. And that, you know, in during the Cold War, you know, that was the goal. Use all means short of war in order to fight this. But there's this kind of natural evolution of this term to mean all means, you know, short of war uh, that, you know, trigger retaliation. Um, And, you know, is what happened in Ukraine is the hybrid warfare that happened in Ukraine where they're, you know, firing missiles and shooting guns and killing people 
a means short of war? Or have we entered a new chapter in this? That looked sort of like a war to me. Right. Well, and that's the point. And, <laughs> and when, you're, when you're attacking other people's you know, d- you know, systems and governments and planning to shut down their grids and all this other stuff, you know, you might conclude the same thing. And the question is, have we lost sight of the short of part? And, and have we entered a new chapter in this whole thing where, where, you know, we are, we, you know, you, you know, you talk about war being everything. Well, you know, where we, we come to a point where the cost of war is so high that people can get away with a lot more. And, and, and war is not just everything, it's all the time. I always think in some ways asking the question is is such and such war or not war is, is sort of the wrong question, right? Because go back to the original Clausewitzian uh, statement that war is politics by other means, you know, that, that what war is uh, fundamentally is an effort to achieve political ends. And we get so fixated, I think, sometimes on trying to label what's happening that we forget to ask the more important question, which is, is whatever this thing or bundle of things, whatever this thing or bundle of things is, is it achieving the political objectives of those who are engaging in it? And, you know, so so you could imagine um, at different ends of the continuum, right, you could imagine a something that everybody would clearly agree was a, a war involving physical force, involving dead bodies and so on, um, that was, you know, brief, uh, uh, that failed to achieve anybody's political ends, but it's it's still a war, but it might not actually do any significant harm to the the object, you know, um, and it might not achieve it might not achieve the political ends of those who engaged in it in any way. In which case, the fact that it's a war is sort of, you know, that's nice, but it didn't do anything. You can also imagine actions that are, most of us would say, boy, they don't reach that war threshold, but that in are, are far more effective in achieving the political ends. And I, you know, I think that's sort of the question about what Russia is doing now. It's that we shouldn't we shouldn't waste our time saying, is this a form of war? Is it not a form of war? Um, which which gets very pedantic very fast. Instead, we should be saying, um, is Russia successfully engaging in a range of activities, whatever you feel like calling them, that are that are achieving their political ends and undermining our objectives as as a nation? And I think the answer to that one is yes, pretty clearly. Um, yeah. You know, so so in that sense, I don't I don't care what we call it, and and I think that that actually tends to lead us, given the malleability of the legal and political categories, the the sort of semantic debate often sort of leads us uh, down rabbit holes that aren't particularly helpful and prevent us from thinking in very concrete ways. Yet, you know, what do we do about this? Um, are we happy that Russia's achieving its ends? Uh, no, I don't think we are, except for Trump, right? So what do we do about it? Well, Evelyn, you know, I, I, I think that's, you know, there is a big question here, because right now the response that we've got is, do we sanction them or do we not sanction them? That's kind of it, you know, and you know, if they're willing to live with sanctions, uh, then they're going to continue doing it. And well, if, yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not. You know, maybe cyber attacking them is 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 something we've got to do. Maybe we've got to explore other kinds of more aggressive measures. I'm just wondering what you think. 
So I see this, it's not just about Russia. When you said they, if they do it, well, okay, so there, there's the issue of Russia, you know, taking actions that are counter to international law and, and, and you know, run counter to our interest in preserving the international order. The Chinese are also doing similar things. What they did in the South China Sea with seizing those rocks yeah. and then building islands, and then not only building islands but fortifying them with military um, weaponry and, in some cases, small amounts of personnel. I mean, that is, you know, that is absolutely counter to international law and order. And so, uh, it's not just about Russia. It's about it's about what does Russia get away with. What is China getting away with? You know, I'm equally alarmed about China because, you know, about 30% of the world's trade go, commerce goes through that um, South China Sea area. And, and it's really the precedent. I mean, if the Chinese get away with this, then we will have lots of problems with other countries emulating them. And just as, you know, with Russia seizing Crimea and redrawing boundaries using force. I mean, we had Vic, uh, Viktor Orban, you know, practically clapping in Budapest because he's got that whole, you know, po political issue of the Hungarians outside of Hungary's borders. Well, that's five countries, by the way, you know, that he would be immediately challenging. And then we're looking back again at 19th century, you know, um, balance of power politics, which basically will probably end up, you know, with the right make might makes right. And then countries trying to challenge international borders. So, you know, we've had this conversation before, but I think that's, that's the real issue. It's, it's, it's the ends are as bad as the means and we need to stand up if we can, you know, as a nation with countries that still have a vested interest in the international order and as firmly as we can, sometimes we need to be willing to use force. You know, in the case of Syria, I applauded uh, using force to basically bolster the taboo against using chemical weapons. But I also would have uh, would have supported using force at least for some humanitarian reasons or the threat of use of force for humanitarian reasons along the way. Um, and and we certainly have to be willing to sanction. We certainly need to call out and isolate diplomatically. I know that sounds like talk, but sometimes it does affect nations. So there are things we can do. We're just not doing enough of it. Well, I, I'm sure that this whole uh, turn in the discussion has warmed your heart, Corey, because, of course, it brings us um, to the, you know, Congress of Vienna um, <laughs> and Metternich. And, and, of course, you know, Kissinger began his career writing a Ph.D. thesis on that oh my and, God. and on balance of power. Where's Ed when we need him? And, and on balance of power politics spent his entire career living in a bipolar world, practically. And the question is, you know, do, you know, can you envision a situation in which the current onslaught against stabilizing international institutions is successful enough that brings us back into that kind of balance of power reality? Um, uh, so... I don't like balance of power reality because I think the last 70 years of American foreign policy have been the effective rebuttal to it, which is that um, states can construct an international order 
of permanent friends by making as by offering security guarantees to like-minded states and coming up with rules that encourage peaceful compromise and mediation of disputes and that get enshrined in institutions that benefit all participants in it. So, you know, I've always thought the Congress of Vienna was fine for its time, but American foreign policy in the time of our dominance improved upon it. And, and the reason countries didn't viciously balance against American power for the last 70 years has been that we created an institutional order that legitimated the power of the strong by giving weaker states a say both over the rules and allowing their voluntary acceptance rather than their coerced acceptance of them. Um, so not only do I think Kissinger's overrated, I think balance of power is overrated. I'm in favor of constructing an order of voluntary accession of the kind that has benefited the United States and so many of our friends for such a long period of time and not just benefited us by preventing war and preventing balancing against us, but by making us all prosperous as well. And Rosa, Amen, sister. And Rosa, do you support the idea of Corey being able to put that system in place and oversee it? <laughs> I absolutely support it. If Corey is going to be our, our overlord, I, I think that's going to work out well for all of us. It, I, I, Mischievous, I have, David. Mischievous. Well, no, I think, you know, if we can get the support of the deep state, anything is possible. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I understand that's been your goal from the very outset here. Um, absolutely. When, I am building a power base when you said, on, you on know, shoulders of our nerds, when you said very coyly a year ago, well, what if we put together a podcast that deep state members listen to and maybe <laughs> we could mobilize them and get them to do what we want them to do? Perhaps... I wish that were my superpower. I wish persuasiveness were my superhero power. Oh, come on. Come on, Rosa. Don't let that stand. Obviously, you... Corey, were... I think it is. Exactly. I curtsy my thanks to you, my friend. <laughs> well, I, I I, not only think that it that it is, but I think that every episode of Deep State Radio is evidence of that. Um, in any event, I think that does bring us to the conclusion of this episode of Deep State Radio and what an episode it's been, you know, because we have had hunky Imran Khan and his cricket outfit, um, albeit that he is a, an aging hunk, you know, that's, the, you know, give, give, hey. a guy, give, give a guy, give a guy, give a guy a break. Um, and uh, we've had nukes and the Clausewitz and... Metternich and you know what more could you want on a summer's day when you're out working out or chopping zucchini or whatever it is that deep state nerds <laughs> listen to um I mean, that's why i assume they're out there like chopping zucchinis but um uh, you don't and, normally do that outdoors if you're gonna chop your zucchini that's usually an indoor activity out there like out there where well i didn't mean with like, their machetes <laughs> I, I make some zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, David is showing he didn't grow up on a farm. 
<laughs> I was born in Urbana, Illinois. Okay. Wow. I, 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 I was born in, you know, I am a corn-fed, all-American boy. David, I'll tell you the, the trouble with z zucchinis, as, as anyone who's tried to grow them knows, is that they're like triffids. You know, first you have one little zucchini and you think, oh, this is so great. I have this zucchini. It's great. I'll, I'll cook it. And then the next thing you know, you have like 8 million gigantic zucchinis and they're taking over the neighborhood and you inflict them on all of your neighbors and, and things get bad. It's like a horror movie. You mean Attack of the Killer Zucchinis? Is that where it's we're going? It's from Star Trek. <laughs> am, I, am I wrong, guys? I, have, exactly. I, I think it's similar with cucumber because I have like two or three cucumbers that my friend just gave me from her garden in Annapolis because she had this proliferation. There See, we go. Yeah. That's See, and we, here's, this will be the subject of our next ep episode. Yeah, proliferation the, issues in the context of vegetables. Security guarantees that could prevent this kind of proliferation. Yeah. Well, and that's right. And that's what you need is the ZNPT, the Zucchini Non-Proliferation <laughs> Treaty. Um, and you know, the world would be a safer place or salads would be better in any event. That's why we do this every week so that we have something left over to discuss next week. And I'm sure we'll get to that next week. Thank, <laughs> thank you. I mean, what could happen in the interim besides the Manafort trial? Thank you, Rosa. <laughs> thank you, Corey. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you. Zucchinis everywhere. Um, you will, you will soon rule the world and Corey, not the zucchinis. Uh, well, one of you will be our overlords. We'll see how that turns out. Um, <laughs> bye bye. Deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network, a division of TRG interactive media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with goat rodeo productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.